Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. As you might have seen, I just started a Patreon for both the website and the podcast and YouTube stuff. And I know, I know, another YouTube asshole with a Patreon. It's probably annoying, and I'm sorry, but I really do just want to keep this going as long as I possibly can. And all the details are in the video I made for the Patreon and on the page and everything, so I'm not going to waste everybody else's time. The only thing I would like you to consider is, you know, the, the minimum amount to donate is $5 a month. And so that's about a dollar a week, you know, on average. So just think, is at least one thing you hear in this podcast worth a dollar a week to you? You know, it's impossible for everybody to be interested in, in all the different news updates and stuff. But is like, is there enough in here every week to just, you know, to make it seem like a dollar a week is worth it to you? And if so, you know, just consider going. The, the link is obviously in the description and just, you know, really see because... I just, I want to keep this going as long as I possibly can, so hopefully, um, if you guys think it's worth it, I'll be able to continue doing so. But anyway, enough of that, I'll just jump right into the news. First up, the GameCube Video X form is now live on Badass Console's website, so if you had an existing order, um, just log into that and select if you want to continue the, the original process of sending your console in and having it modded internally, or if you would prefer just to uh, receive an external version instead. And it was actually kind of funny because last week, I you know, I the whole opening was calling calling out badass console saying you know are you going to keep your promise and about an hour before my podcast went live he had tweeted the link to the website and no we didn't plan that that wasn't some kind of you know some fun thing that we did although i probably would have if he asked but no um it's uh it just so happens that i recorded the podcast the next day uploaded it overnight and about an hour before i hit you know, make it public, he had tweeted that. So, fun coincidence, but looks like things are moving forward, um, and I'll just continue to give little updates weekly, and hopefully he'll continue to tweet weekly about status and stuff like that. Next is an update from HD Retrovision. Tomorrow, which is Thursday, April 27th, at 9pm Eastern Time, they're going to be putting up their B-Stock cables for sale, and I don't think there are many at all, so they'll probably sell out pretty quickly. All cables are sold as is with some sort of defect to them. Now, they sent me a few to test with, uh, and one supposedly had an issue with one of the audio cables. I didn't notice anything. The video was still perfect. So if you're looking for uh, either one of these cables and you don't care that they're not perfect or there might be a tiny little defect, definitely jump on these. The cables are going to be $40 plus shipping. Um, and like I said, I mean, you know, it's you get whatever they send you, but the ones that I tested were fine. Uh, and I believe they're still on track for a summer release of the next revision of cables. These are obviously the leftovers from the last batch. So hopefully they'll make, you know, a gazillion of them next time and we don't have to worry about them being out of stock. But anybody that was really waiting on them, just jump on that tomorrow night and see if you could pick one up. 
The remake of Wonder Boy, A Dragon's Trap, was released last week, and I downloaded it on Switch, and I absolutely loved it. Um, it's really not surprising, though, because all the team members are just hardcore retro gaming fans, and Bach, Omar, is actually one of the guys that's uh, one of the main guys on the SMS Power forums. So it wasn't a surprise to me at how good it was, and um, but it was a surprise on how much better than the original. So of course the artwork and music is absolutely gorgeous and what, exactly what you'd expect out of a remake. But the two things that really kind of blew me away about it are if you just hit the, uh, the right trigger on the Switch, you switch instantly between how it used to look on the Master System and then the, the new version of it. But I believe it's all running at 60 frames a second, including when you press the retro button. And it's not on the Master System. If you download the SMS version, it's 30 frames a second, and it's really, really ugly to look at. So I don't think I ever really noticed the difference until I played... Because uh, I didn't really play much of the Wonder Boy games. When, um, but now that i played the Switch version, you know, I probably put a couple hours into it at this point. To go back and try it, even on a BVM, you know, with a, a really nice RGB upgraded SMS... Just seeing that in 30 frames a second almost made me dizzy. So it was a very, very cool upgrade uh, across the board. And I just, as much as I'm a fan of the retro stuff, the retro music, I very much preferred to play it with the new graphics and music. I just thought they did, did an amazing job. And because I hadn't really played a lot of those games before, it was kind of neat for me to experience them, I guess for the first time, really, because it's the first time I put hours into them. And I, you know maybe spoiler alert but i love the fact that um you go back to existing worlds after in order to get to different places so something you've passed twice and then you couldn't get to you know another point in the game you go back to it it's kind of neat it's not as linear as like mario brothers where you just go one world after the other and i don't think i have a preference i really you know i just think it's kind of unique or it certainly was unique back when they made the game um well, I guess I've gushed over it long enough. Obviously, what I'm saying is it's a great game, and if you're a fan of side-scrollers at all, retro side-scrollers, new ones, doesn't matter, I highly recommend picking this one up. So uh, congratulations to that team, and you know, I hope someday to get Omar on for an interview. I asked a few times. I knew he was really busy, but uh, maybe someday he'll come back on and kind of talk about what it was like to program for the Switch and you know, all the little details, especially the nerdy details about making the game. Next, Chris Covell just posted a video on his YouTube channel about a Game Boy copier he found, and I thought it was pretty neat. You know, basically you just plug the Game Boy cartridge in, press a button, and it flashes it to a flash cart that's the same size as a Game Boy game. And it's, you know, it's a few years old, so it's kind of beat up and doesn't work as well, but I just, I, I never got a chance to see the, that stuff when I was a kid, so it's kind of neat. One of these days I really want to go and try one of the, like the three and a half inch floppy game copiers for Super Nintendo or, you know, or even something like this, but while it's not something I would really use now, it's, if I ever got the opportunity to do a video on it, I think it would be fun to play with. But uh, check out his video if you're interested. A new demo scene video was just posted called Overdrive 2, which is a PAL Genesis demo. And to be honest with you, I saw this a few weeks ago, and I didn't really understand what it was, so I didn't include it in the news. And apparently, I didn't even know what demo scene was. Uh, and somebody named Wendell actually emailed me and explained it to me. So basically, it's a form of basically like an art artwork but designed to be viewed on an original game console and a lot of people do it in a way where it pushes the console to its absolute limits just to kind of see what they could squeeze out of it 
And I guess he said it's mostly a European-based subculture, but you could kind of see it uh, coming from all over the place. And to be honest, uh, you know, now that I know that, I went back and, and reviewed a lot of the old video demos I'd seen over the years, and it was really impressive. So I'm surprised I just skipped over that, because uh, as much as I am I would never call myself an artist, I do very much appreciate art, especially when it comes to nerdy stuff that I love. So um, I definitely recommend checking out the video, and, you know, the only downside for me is I see the demo, and now I want a game that looks like that. <laughs> so um, definitely check it out, and uh, the guys that did it, or the guys, girls, the team that did it, did an amazing job. Well, I'm sure most of you have already heard the rumor that Nintendo is coming out with a SNES Classic this winter, just because last year the NES Classic was so popular. And to be honest, I, I almost hope that they don't, because last year it was just a Linux-based software emulation box, pretty much exactly like a Raspberry Pi, which we could all get and make ourselves. So I just, you know, I know I have a negative attitude about this, and I do understand that there is a huge market for it. There is a ton of people that just want to buy a box, plug it in, use the original controllers, play it for an hour, get that little shot of nostalgia, and be done with it. But I think the thing that pisses me off the most about this is that we've had individuals by themselves reverse engineer the NES, and now upcoming with the Super Nintendo, and make an FPGA-based uh, project that's essentially perfect. I mean, you know, the AVS and then, uh, like, the Analog NT Mini, Kevtris's, uh, pretty much Kevtris's Zimba 2000, that emulates NES games through FPGA perfectly. I mean, it adds a ton of features, adds an HDMI, but... You know, the fact that they're a company with a budget and a team of people and they choose to just, you know, do a software emulator rather than do it right, you know, real hardware emulation, it just annoys me because they could do it. They could make an amazing console for, you know, maybe it's 99 instead of 59, but whatever. And, you know, people would still buy it and the, the hardcore retro gaming enthusiasts would go apeshit for it and absolutely love it. But I don't think they're going to do that. So I'm going to hold off any more rumor talk about that until it's you know something official from Nintendo. But if they do actually make it, let's cross our fingers and hope it's not just another software emulator in a box. Next, Capcom released the Disney's Afternoon Collection on the PC, Xbox One, and PS4. But not the Switch, strangely enough. And it's basically a compilation of older games that are Disney-based, like DuckTales 1 and 2, Rescue Rangers 1 and 2, Tailspin, and Darkwing Duck, all NES games. And it comes with a new rewind function and a few other upgrades. And it does look pretty cool. But to be honest, um, I really felt something like that should have been on the Switch, at least before the others. Maybe it's still coming, just because those games were originally on a Nintendo console. But hey, you know, whatever. Uh, anybody with a, a PS4 or an Xbox One wants to chime in and, uh, and let me know what it's like. I think it would be pretty cool. It looks good, and it looks like they did a decent job, but, you know how it looks and how it plays are two completely different things. But as for me, I'm going to fire up my analog NT mini and play the originals for now. There's a new firmware available for the Atari 5200 RGB board called the Sophia. And I believe it uh, fixes a few color issues and uh, just kind of cleans up a few other things. I believe you need a programmer in order to do it. It's not something that you could do via ROM cart. But if you already own one of these and, and a programmer, it definitely makes sense to do it. I've actually held off on mine because I'm considering doing it into an Atari PC instead of the Atari 5200 I just bought. But I'll definitely get to it eventually. It's on my very long list of stuff I gotta do.
Some news on the open source scan converter. First, the last batch sold through Video Game Perfection is completely sold out, and they'll have a new batch ready soon. But also, the new batch is going to be the version 1.6, the upgraded open source scan converter that I mentioned a few weeks ago. So just to reiterate, it'll have audio output by, uh, by default. You won't need the, the extra upgrade board. And it'll also include more audio inputs, which is great. So you could just route all your consoles right through this. But they're going to look into doing a pre-order system, which, you know, of course, I've been lobbying for for a long time. And I really, you know, I feel strongly like they'll, they'll pull it off great. Because when I purchased one uh, off of their last batch, you know, I put myself on the mailing list. I eventually got an email. But when I did, from that point on, their communication was awesome. You knew every step of the way what was going on. And I really felt like from the time my money left my hands, I was kept in the loop. So uh, if there's any guys that are going to be able to pull off a good pre-order, I'm sure it's them because uh, and I'm sure it's going to be just as user friendly, I guess. But, you know, I've been incessantly nagging them forever to do this. So now if you were one of the people that was waiting to find one and just couldn't get your hands on one, you know, we've been waiting on a mailing list. If they do this and as soon as they launch it, now's the time. Definitely jump on it. And I really wish them the best of luck because I want everybody to have an OSSC. And I also want them to make a bunch of money so that they could keep selling these products. Because I know there's a few more products in the pipeline that I would really be interested in. So uh, good luck to all of them. And everybody cross your fingers because we might all be able to get an OSSC now. It looks like the PS4 has just been jailbroken by security researcher Luca Tedesco. Now, he hasn't released anything to the public, and I'm not sure that he will, but I just thought it's neat that something like that's possible on a modern console. And uh, although I certainly wouldn't want piracy, uh, I did really love all of the homebrew stuff that's happened over the years on all the consoles that have been hacked. So who knows, maybe it'll open it up to a fun new thing for PS4 owners. The company Pico Interactive just purchased the rights to two Japanese Super Nintendo games, Iron Commando and Legend. And they're starting an Indiegogo campaign to try to relaunch those as localized English versions for both PAL and NTSC Super Nintendos. And it looks pretty cool. So at the time of recording this, they're about halfway through to their fixed goal. But they have, you know, almost half a month left, uh, or just over half a month left. So it's looking good so far. Um, and Pico has had a history of doing things like this and doing a good job in the release of the game. So if these look like two games you'd be interested in purchasing, you know, definitely give it a try. The Retro Guru team have just released another homebrew game for the Sega Genesis. It's called Zump 2. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's a sequel to a game they made a while back. And, uh, you know, as, as you would imagine, I love any kind of newer game on older console, and I love homebrew projects like this. So uh, if you have a Genesis ROM car or don't mind playing through an emulator, definitely give this a try. And the game is down available to download for free right from their website. Ben Venn has just released a video on his Facebook page of a Game Boy Advance RGB output kit. So, yeah, it's exactly as it sounds. It's a kit that you could just uh, open up a Game Boy Advance. He shows an SP on his website. Then you unplug the ribbon cable and plug in his ribbon cable, and it will output RGB and VGA. You're also able to use a Super Nintendo controller on it, but you would either have to wire a controller directly or one of those, um, like a, I would cut off the end of an extension cable and wire that directly to the Game Boy Advance SP. But either way, I mean, it, it looks pretty awesome. And it's both VGA 
uh, and RGB, so you could use it on either monitor. And I'm really excited to get my hands on one because Woozle's also working on the same type of thing, but his first release of that is going to be HDMI only. So I think this fits perfect at the moment. You know, they both have products that I would very happily purchase from them. Uh, and as soon as I can get a prototype or any more information at all, I'll post more info about it. But it's pretty exciting, and uh, I just can't wait for the project to move forward. Rockstar Games just released GTA Tiny Racers for their Grand Theft Auto Online system. And it looks really neat. It's like a top-down, micro-machine-style racing game. And I believe it's for Grand Theft Auto Online only. So it's not like a standalone game you could purchase in a download shop. You have to be part of the Grand Theft Auto Online community and play it through there. At least I think. I've actually I've only seen the videos. I've never even really played Grand Theft Auto Online. I know it started out really rocky, but I think people have told me it got pretty good, at least recently. So uh, if you're already a member, I would check it out because it looks very cool. And to me, it just really makes me want to play one of the old Micro Machine top-down racing games. The Behar Brothers have just posted a price and release date for their consolized Game Gears. It's $290, and they'll be released on Friday, May 5th at 11 a.m., uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's at first, at least, it's going to be a very small run of production, and I guess they're probably just testing the waters to see how much interest is actually in this, because, of course, there's the hardcore Game Gear enthusiasts that are going to jump on it, but how many more people would really need something like this? I mean, I think they're going to sell out pretty quickly, but, you know, that's just my opinion. Uh, so good luck to them, and if you guys were looking to, to pick one up, Friday, May 5th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Next, Otaku Games have just released two manual push-button SCART switches. One is a six-input switch for $40 that also outputs SCART and RCA, and the other one is this crazy looking, still only has six inputs, but you could use either SCART or RCAs as the input, as well as the output for $53. And uh, they don't have cases right now, they come board only, and it just, it looks so weird I had to buy one. So I'm not really sure how long it's going to take to get here. It says avail availability is one to two weeks, plus they have to ship it to me. So, um, and I believe these come from Hong Kong, but I, I mean... Who knows how good it's going to be. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical just because uh, just I know what goes into making these things noise-free and what could happen. But, I mean, I, it just looked so weird I had to give it a try. So whenever I get it in, I'll probably do a review. And at the very least, I'll talk about it here. Next, it looks like Retro USB is making more progress with their wireless Nintendo controllers. It looks like Retromog got to borrow some and use them at a trade show. And based on the pictures, they look exactly as Brian described, and I'm really looking forward to trying them out. Um, he seemed to be very finicky about Bluetooth controllers and how he didn't like the potential for lag. And these are really designed around a zero lag wireless controller solution. So I'm very much looking forward to try them out. And hopefully they'll work on everything that a Nest controller will work on, including, which, you know, it's weird to say, but including the analog NT-mini and original Nest, everything. But as soon as I'm able to try them out, I'll definitely let everybody know what it's like. Another Sonic the Hedgehog fan game has just been released called Sonic Time Twisted, and it's only for Windows PC, which is a little disappointing because I love playing this stuff on original hardware, but it looks to be a pretty awesome game, and it has a CD quality soundtrack and a ton of different zones and bosses. So if anybody's into PC gaming and likes Sonic, this seems like a perfect thing to try. 
Next, Shmup's user Naked Arthur has just posted a new Nest palette that he made, and he calls it the Wave Beam palette. And he comes right out and saying that this is his interpretation of what he wants the palette to look like, which I love stuff like this. You know, especially when you're talking about things like NTSC colors, which is people always joke about it being called never the same color, because it's really hard to say what what would actually be the original colors. And people were even saying, depending on the TV, depending on the video processing chip, there's a million things that go into it. And while I've been using the Firebrand X palette for a very long time, um, I, I just love messing around with the other ones sometimes just to see what it's like. And stuff like this is completely subjective, so really just use whatever is your favorite. But if you have an analog NT Mini, you could actually just load these things up and switch between them right while you're playing. Next, Smoke Monster just updated his NT Mini and NES ROM sets, so if you're a user of either one of those, I suggest re-downloading the latest version. And he's also added a bug report form in the, the facts section in the topic that he posted in, so if you find any bugs with any of this stuff, you could just go directly there instead of cluttering up the topic, which kind of makes things easier for everybody. So thanks to him for, uh, for all the hard work, and the NT Mini pack is pretty awesome. Next, there's been a few updates to the open source Dreamcast HDMI project. Um, the creator, Chris C2600, posted on Shmups and answered a bunch of questions that people were kind of mulling over. And then he also had a question for anybody that had a thought on it. What about placement of the internal HDMI board? What if instead of just placing it in an empty space inside the Dreamcast that might already be taken up by a mod chip or one of those optical drive emulators, What's everybody's thoughts on removing the internal power supply, putting the HDMI board mixed with the power supply board there, a DC to DC power supply board, and then having an external brick? What's everybody's thoughts on that? You know, is it good idea, bad idea? You know, I don't think any case modding would be necessary because the little prong output, there'd be a big enough hole. So if you put the PCB, there could be like a micro HDMI port and a little, just a hole for a standard DC input. So if anybody has any thoughts on that, especially if any of the developers that are that know a lot about power supplies have thoughts on that, maybe consider posting in shmups or, or private messaging them. Or if you don't feel like doing any of that, let me know and I'll try to relay the information. But I thought it was a pretty cool idea, but I don't know enough about DC power supplies uh, and HDMI boards to, to really make that call. I know that it might be an issue on analog boards if not done perfect. So I'm going to leave that up to the people smarter than me. Next, there's a few updates to the RetroTINK project. That's that component video hat for the Raspberry Pi. First, the developer said that anybody who ordered one, it should ship by within a week, probably, of listening to this podcast. And uh, all of the... Uh, all of the initial testing is done and it's ready to go. I personally have tested it. I only had limited time to test it. I, I need to go back into it, but so far it looks great to me. I haven't, you know, I haven't put it under a scope. I haven't really dug into it, but at the very least there's nothing that jumps right out and not, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. So at the moment I could certainly say that, especially if you have a consumer grade CRT TV, this is a perfect way to get 240p arcade emulation through it. The developer is also working on an 8-bit RGB output board. So the, the most common ones sold now are based off of the GERT 666 design, the 6-bit RGB output. And this one has a, uh, BNC outputs to allow for full 8-bit RGB out. 
I'm not really sure if there's a difference, but as soon as I get a prototype, you know damn well I'm going to test it, do comparison shots, and try it. So it's just really cool to see that uh, he's continuing on this Raspberry Pi projects, and even in the video that he showed, um, he's actually able to stack these up on top of each other. So for whatever crazy reason, you could actually have component video, S-video, composite, and uh, RGB output all coming from the same time. Which, while that might seem a little nuts for your average user, that might actually be a huge help for people that do streaming or anything like that. So uh, definitely check out the project, and I'll update with solid info as soon as I have any more testing done on the component, or as soon as the RGB version gets in. Now on to the Q&As. I actually have a question for you guys to start out. Um, I'll just jump to the question and then explain it. What should the prerequisites be for somebody that wants to be listed as a trusted modder on my or, or any retro gaming website? It's my opinion, at least at the moment, that somebody should provide pictures of their work and a reference from somebody else in the retro gaming community. And the reason I ask is I've gotten a few people, uh, I've actually gotten a bunch of emails over the past month or so from people who have heard my rants about awful eBay modders and they want to be listed as a good modder. And when I'll ask for those things, they'll very often say, oh, well, here, I'll give you a couple references for my customers. And I don't think that's a good gauge of somebody's work, because that would mean that the customer themselves would have to understand the difference between good and bad mod work, which is, you know, I'm not insulting the you know, said customer. It's just, it's not, that's not what they need to be doing. They just, you know, it, unless it happens to be someone in the community. And I find that a lot of times people will buy multiple things from somebody that's not a good modder and they'll just go, oh, yeah, I love it. It works fine. It works fine. And then one of us will get them and open them up and look at it and go, oh, my God, this is awful, which is terrible because that's actually happened to a few like famous retro gamers, if you want to put it that way, where they're like, uh, you know, they'll send somebody a console, uh, a good trusted modder, a console that modder will open up the console and then. Uh, this is garbage. No, no, my friend's awesome. He did a great job. It's, uh, no, no, it's not. So it's, you know, I, I don't think that trusting a customer opinion is a good thing. And I don't, once again, I'm not trying to say people are stupid, but if no one has ever explained to you what's the difference between a good or a bad mod, how would you know? It's just, you know, it's your average person's not going to realize it. So do you think that's fair that, you know, the retro gaming community, you know, when compared to the billions of people on the planet is pretty small, but it's still a lot of people. Do you think that it's unfair for me to ask for a reference from somebody else in the community as well as pictures? Or do I just cross my fingers and go on customer uh, customer reviews? Because my gut tells me that's not going to work. So uh, I'd love to hear you guys' opinion about it, though. Next, Will Mitchell asked if I could increase the volume of my videos each week. Um, I've actually been really trying to do that, and most of it is where I have to shoot these videos. I'm really confined to a tiny little space, which I, I'll try to show in the Patreon video too. But um, And I think I figured out a way to do it, so if I'm stuck in still recording right where I am now, I think I could get the sound better. But tell me what you think. Is this better than the past couple of weeks, or is it the same and no change at all? But it is something I've been definitely trying to do. And, you know, it's little by little. You know, cost, um, time spent, and more importantly for me, the space that it takes to do all this stuff is really what's holding me back from improving faster. But let me know what you think, and uh, hopefully this is better. Next, Mad Mad had some questions about clone hardware. And his first was... Um, 
the GB Boy Light. So that's the the clone system of a Game Boy Color with that's backlit, and the um, the aspect ratio is off, which really. I didn't like it. It just it took away from the experience. Some people said that the buttons on it didn't feel authentic, and while I agree, that didn't bother me nearly as bad as just that weird aspect ratio and the screen tearing you get from it. My Life in Gaming showed it in their video as well, and it just, uh, yeah, I mean, that to me just just kind of ruined the experience, and I certainly don't think it's comparable to, like, the NT Mini or, or something. Um, he also asked if it's comparable to a Revo for the Game Boy Advance games, but I've actually never played one of those. I just I try to stay away from clone hardware in general. And then he asked a good question, and I, I actually don't know if I'm going to be able to answer this correctly, so maybe chime in if I screw this up royally. Um, he asked if something like the GB Boy clone is considered hard or soft emulation in terms of hardware, and then, you know, could I give a brief breakdown of hardware cloning like that? And what I believe, which might be dead wrong, is that, you know, software emulation is very, it's very blatantly, you're loading up an OS of sorts, then running a software layer on top of that, that has the emulation layer. Um, whereas hard emulation is somebody tries to make their own clone version of the video processing and CPU chips. And I believe that the GB Boy Color uh, is hardware emulation. And I, th I think the only real difference between something like that and something like the NT Mini with uh, Kevtris's cores is just the, the quality and the time spent on it. So, you know, a lot of these clone hardware things I've seen over the years, hardware clones, have been really bad. <laughs> like, sounds way off. And it, I think it's because people don't take the time to analyze and, and clone, reverse engineer and clone the chips, whereas good hardware emulation, like the AVS or the NT Mini, they really took the time to go in and just make sure everything was as perfect as possible. And I think that both of those use FPGAs versus printing their own chip for it. So basically, I mean, because you could have an FPGA-based emulation that's terrible. It just do a bad job doing it. It just so happens that the AVS and the NT Mini are excellent. So I'm pretty sure that's it. I'm pretty sure, you know... The only it is hard emulation, and the only difference is the the quality of work done to reverse engineer it and replicate the experience. But if anybody else wants to chime in, I would love to hear everybody's opinion. And I know there's always like a hardware emulation, software emulation battle. So maybe just keep the comments directed towards Mad Mad's actual question. Next, NeoZed has an update to his Extron crosspoint issue that we've been talking about for a while. And he said he looked into the Extron multiplexers with 75 ohm switches. The dip switch is on the newer models, and it switches the sync input impedance from 510 ohms to 75 ohms on the first four inputs only. Input 5 and above is fixed to 510 ohms, as is all inputs on his older crosspoint. And that's only on the sync inputs, not RG or B. They're all 75 ohm. So he said the important part is that the switch does not change the output voltage of sync. It remains at TTL level from the Extron. And he said he measured the input impedance on the SCART input of the OSSC, which is 75 ohms, so not safe for TTL. But the 15-pin D-sub is high impedance, so that is safe with TTL. Um, and he also checked his XRGB3, which supposedly is also safe with TTL. Uh, the XRGB Mini, I believe, is not. I believe that has to be 75 ohm through the front port, or that could do, you know, it could lower the life of the Framemeister. Um, 
And he said uh, his SCART to component, component clone converter is the same way. It's also 75 ohm impedance, not TTL safe. So this is all important info. And to be honest, I, I used to use an Extron crosspoint, and then I ended up, you know, now I plug everything in directly just because I don't have the, the room for any of it. Um, and I don't remember. I remember setting the dip switches, but I do know that there are a lot of different models of crosspoints. So generally speaking, if somebody's going to go down the road of owning a crosspoint, everything needs to be custom. Everything's expensive. So it, you're going to, I mean, you have to at least be aware of video signals and just the basics. So now that you figured that out, knowing that we need to go from the Extron crosspoint into a device that switches from TTL to 75 ohms into the, you know, into your XRGB mini, then that's, that's a pretty good find. I'd like to verify it on a few others just because I know that there are a lot of cross points out there. So if I'm able to get my hands on one, I'll definitely try it and see if I could do some testing. But just the fact that we're making more people aware of the different types of sync is a good thing. And although it's over most people's heads, including mine to a point, <laughs> I won't pretend like I'm a genius in this stuff. Um, you know, it, as long as we could find little ways to make all this stuff easier and better, then in, in learn as we go. Uh, I really appreciate the input. So uh, anybody using an Extron crosspoint, um, you might want to just double check what the output is and see if we need to put a device between that uh, if you're going into a frame meister. So, um, yeah, good research. Thanks for sharing. Next, Uzmaki82 asked if I'd seen what Bordy's new SNES RGB board looks like and if I'm going to review it at all. And uh, I did check it out. It was awesome. I mean, Bordy does great work. Uh, in fact, I think that all of the 7374 boards I've seen come out for the SNES do a very good job. But yeah, I will be doing a very in-depth review on that soon. The problem is that I needed to learn more about why I was seeing the differences in some of these. And thanks to the help of a bunch of people, and especially including Voltar, uh, Steve from HD Retrovision, and Leon K., I, I, I'm understanding how those low-pass filters work and how it affects each scenario. And I also got a really high-end capture card that's able to, to see a lot more of these little details. So um, I don't know how long it's going to take me because it's so much information involved and so much time involved. But there will be an updated version of the SNES version compare page on my site. The comparing of the different revisions I might update just because I have a newer capture card. But that information will be the exact same. What will change is the, how each individual mod looks on, like, the SNES Mini, for example, which requires a mod no matter what for RGB. So uh, I, won't be, I won't be reviewing his board separately. It'll be re reviewed with, throughout all of them. And I, I hope I can get to that soon because it was a bunch of cool info that was learned. Well, that's it for this week. If you guys have time, please check out the Patreon page and the, either read through or check out the video there and see if this is something you'd want to support. And I'll admit, I mean, it's it's really embarrassing asking for help and money and support and stuff like that. And it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of like what's worse, swallowing your pride and, and asking people for help or swallowing your pride looking at the camera and telling people that you're not doing this anymore. So it would feel a lot worse if I wasn't able to, to do the weekly roundup or put as much time into the site as I have been. So I, I figured I'd just suck it up, not be a baby, and and see if you guys would be willing to support and help. But if not, I understand. I mean, people got bills to pay, and, you know, money's money. So I hope, uh, I hope this is something I can continue to do for a very long time, and I hope I could 
I could improve in every aspect. And having something like a successful Patreon is definitely what I would need. So uh, I won't bug you guys too much about this anymore. I'm certainly not going to be one of those guys that tweets every 10 minutes about it or any of that stuff. Uh, if you decide that, that you want to support, uh, I will be eternally grateful. And if not, uh, to quote Tupac, I ain't mad at you. <laughs> See you guys next time, and as always, uh, you know, any comments or criticism down below is much appreciated.